May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Today, of course, we celebrate the great feast of Pentecost, at which we commemorate the receiving of the Holy Spirit by the Church. So what does it mean to receive the Holy Spirit? We know that in the book of Acts, the disciples were gathered together, and there came a thunderous sound and tongues of fire that rested on each of the disciples who were filled by the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages, allowing them to tell the mighty works of God to the many religious Jews who had gathered in Jerusalem for a feast in commemoration of the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. Peter, in particular, preached to a great multitude of worshipers, and 3,000 of them were baptized into the new faith, the first generations of the church. Rather than retell this familiar story in its historical presentation, I have chosen to dwell on the theological meaning of this event, according to both John the Evangelist and Paul the Apostle. We know what happened when the Holy Spirit descended upon the church, but we cannot fully understand what it meant without broadening our view on this inaugural event. Consider first John. In this brief reading from the Gospel, John reports that Jesus proclaimed something bold and mysterious on the last day of the feast, the great day. Well, what feast are we talking about? This is actually the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, as it's sometimes called. This feast lasted for seven days and had a number of symbolic dimensions, most of them to do with the element of water. During these seven days, the people lived in temporary shelters, or booths, or tabernacles. And they did this to call to remembrance the 40 years that the ancestors had experienced being led by God in the wilderness after their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. It was during this experience of being led by God that God provided for them, most dramatically, when he provided them with water, Moses struck the rock, and water, streams of water, gushed forth in the wilderness. In remembrance of this miraculous provision of water, each day in the temple, a water libation would be offered. The priest would come pour a giant pitcher of water over the altar each day for seven days. Each day as well, there will be a singing of Psalm 114. That psalm ends with a recollection of how God turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into flowing streams. 
So the Feast of Tabernacles, therefore, looks back, back to God's provision of water during the sojourn in the wilderness. But the feast also looked forward, forward to the temple being itself a source of healing water in the Messianic age. The prophet Ezekiel foresaw a time when water would flow from the temple over the earth. And wherever that stream of water goes, he says, everything it touches will live. So think of that water libation, the image of water cascading down the altar and out the doors of the temple. The last day of this feast was a day of rejoicing. And it's on this final day that Jesus makes his bold proclamation. If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. For John, Jesus is himself the wellspring of living water. He is both the fulfillment of what God did for his people in the wilderness and the fulfillment of what the prophet foretold. Jesus is the rock that gushed forth streams of water in the wilderness. Jesus just is the temple from which streams of water flow forth to give life to the whole world. So I've spent some time on this brief passage and on the imagery it evokes because it's supposed to tell us something about the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. John's personal commentary on this very brief saying of Jesus uttered at the conclusion of a feast having everything to do with water, water in the history of Israel, water in the prophetically foretold future of the whole world. John's personal commentary is that Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. Telling them. It is John alone who informs us that when Jesus hung upon the cross, his right side was pierced by the centurion spear, and from that fatal wound, John tells us, flowed both blood and water. That water is the water of life flowing from the temple that was his own body and making new life possible. The new life that belongs to the church. John constantly refers to the crucifixion of Christ as his glorification. Paradoxically, Christ's moment of utter abjection, his dying moment, is also his greatest and most glorious triumph. Jesus, at this point, has yet to be crucified, 
So John says, he has yet to be glorified, and the Holy Spirit has not yet been received. But already, we can get a glimpse of what it will mean. It will mean to be given new life, to drink of the stream that flows from the temple of his wounded body. When Jesus said these words, the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. And yet all of this, all of this is in the background of what Paul has to say about the Holy Spirit. In the epistle to the Romans, he tells us that all who are led by the Holy Spirit are sons of God. Just as the Israelites, delivered from slavery, were led by God in the wilderness, so too we are led by the Holy Spirit. Just as they were delivered from slavery, we too are free of the spirit of slavery and instead have received the spirit of sonship. The Holy Spirit, in fact, bears witness, he says, with our spirit that we are children of God and thus fellow heirs with Christ, provided, provided, he says, we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So just as Christ was glorified at the very moment of his most profound suffering, so too the Holy Spirit may lead us through suffering, through our own suffering, so that we can be glorified, just as he was. To receive the Holy Spirit is therefore nothing less than to be heirs with Christ and to be glorified with him. It is to be children of God. It is to be sons of God. But how can Paul say this? Right? Isn't there just one son of God? Jesus Christ himself? Here's what I think. When we read the Hebrew Scriptures, we read the Psalms, Job, the book of Genesis, we find that the phrase sons of God refers to orders of angelic beings. The sons of God in the Hebrew Scriptures are members of the heavenly court. Now, some translations, out of a desire to be gender-inclusive, avoid this phrase altogether and instead just use the phrase children of God. But Paul actually knows the difference between sons of God and children of God because he uses both phrases, and they are different, in this short passage. That he uses them interchangeably means he thinks it's obvious that women can be children of God as well as men. 
But if we don't hear that echo, that echo of the Hebrew phrase, sons of God, then we are missing something important. Our destiny as human beings who have received the Holy Spirit is nothing less than to join that heavenly court, to be ranked alongside the angels, to be glorified like Jesus Christ himself. This is what it means to be saved. I fear sometimes we set our sights too low when we contemplate this doctrine. We think being saved, receiving the Holy Spirit, means that while we are alive, maybe we'll be a little nicer to people on average with the help of the Holy Spirit, and when we die, we get to go to heaven and chill out. The meaning of being saved, the meaning of receiving the Holy Spirit, is that we get to become like Christ. And we get to receive all that he has received. And let's remember, he has received what? All power and authority over heaven and earth. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father, something we should be acutely aware of just a few days after the Feast of the Ascension. We who are led by the Holy Spirit are being led through our willingness, through our suffering, to where he is right now, living and reigning over all things forever. We, too, will share in that authority over heaven and earth. We will be seated next to him in everlasting glory. So our destiny as redeemed people is cosmically important. And it ought to be awe-inspiring. We are meant to become glorious as Christ is glorious. I am speaking here about what the Eastern Church calls theosis, deification, Becoming like God by becoming children of God. The tragically short-lived Orthodox priest, Father Matthew Baker, wrote an excellent essay on Athanasius' understanding of the doctrine of theosis. There he says the following. Patristic teaching concerning theosis is essentially evangelical theology, a facet of the apostolic and biblical message concerning the person of Jesus Christ and his saving work. There is no false mystification or obscurantism here, no esotericism, and no spiritual elitism whatsoever. There is literally nothing else that we do here that matters more than this. The admittedly magnificent music, 
the quaint and cutesy liturgical customs, women's group, men's group, children's school, theology on tap, none of it. At its worst, it's very much in danger of mystification, obscurantism, and spiritual elitism. But all that matters, all that matters is that we become sons, sons of God within the Son of God. That he may evermore dwell in us and we in him. And of course, it's because of the Son of God that this is even possible. It's the reason that in the Nicene Creed, we say we believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten. Son of God. The really important part of that phrase is only begotten, right? Because, of course, there is only one Son of God who was begotten of his Father before all worlds. The same Son who was incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth But there are many, many sons of God, as many as have received the Holy Spirit. Because of the only begotten Son of God, we can become sons of God, not by natural birth, but as Paul says here and many other places, by adoption by adoption, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Son of God was incarnate and born of the Virgin Mary, his mother, by the same power of the same Holy Spirit, we are adopted by God the Father, and therefore are heirs with Christ our first and oldest brother. Jesus Christ is indeed the only begotten Son. But if we will be led by the Holy Spirit that we have received, then God willing, and with his merciful help, we will be sons of God ourselves. Amen.